we are toward the end of our journey through the book of James. Uh, We're in chapter 5. We're going to be looking in verses 13 through 18. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, We just normally hear what we do is we take a book of the Bible and we just go through it passage by passage. Why do we do it that way? Because what we want to hear, what we need to hear more than anything else is what God has said. Doing it that way just forces us to look at the Bible together week after week. So we come to a passage in James that's near the end of his letter. And as we'll see in just a minute, the the, the theme is pretty obvious. He's talking about prayer. Let's read it together now. James chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is God's word. The words pray or prayer are used in every verse of this passage, a total of seven times. So the big idea is obvious to us. As James is winding down his letter, he wants us to see that true Christianity is fueled by praying faith. The heart of God is open to every aspect of our life through prayer. We not only have a God to worship, We also have a Father who cares about us. In that way, this passage takes us deep into the grace of God. It tells us the good news that God is actually for us, not against us. Now, He has every reason and every right to be against us, doesn't He? I mean, we've sinned and rebelled. We've turned away from Him. But what is his response? In the face of our weakness and sin, God's response in the cleansing blood of Christ is an open door to heaven by prayer. He could slam the door of his throne room. He has every right to. Instead, he calls us to come boldly before him with all our needs, promising that his throne of grace is never not available to us. Before we go too far into this passage, I just want us to just marvel at the grace of prayer. We have the privilege to come to God. And He listens to us and responds. That's astounding. It really is. 
The God of the universe cares about your little life. It's not little to him. He made your life. He sustains your life. He cares about your life. God gives you your good days. God does not stand aloof on your bad days. God doesn't shame you for your failures, but redeems you from the slavery of sin. God does not regret getting involved with you. He delights to care for you as only He can. God provides a way to healing and to peace, though none of us deserve it. The God who created all and rules all, all that we see and all that we know, sees and knows you at the deepest possible level. And he calls you to himself to find provision for all that ails you and a fitting end to all that delights you. So what does God want us to see about prayer in this passage? There's a lot here. But I'm just going to highlight two things this morning. When we pray and why we pray. So first, when we pray. You know, some religions have set times of prayers. Muslims, for example, pray five times a day. Buddhists, Hindus, they pray about three times a day. But the Bible calls Christians to pray without ceasing. Why? Because the God that we serve is a God who is near. Always. Yes, He is transcendently above us in holiness. But He is also imminently near to us. He's always with us. We can pray anytime. We don't have to face Mecca. We don't have to bow before handmade idols. We don't have to be in a temple or even in deep meditation. Our God is always available to us moment by moment throughout our days. Every day. God's ears are always open to us. His throne room door is never shut. And the only access that we need is faith in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit who is freely given to all who believe. We don't have to wait until we get our act together. We don't have to find the right words first. All we must do is come. Jesus actually told us not only to come, but to come often. He said to pester God in prayer, to knock on his door no matter the hour. As Tim Keller once said, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. But unlike a father who might eventually get tired of being woken up, God never grows frustrated with us. Every earthly father has a limit. I know I do. God doesn't. He's perfect for needy people like us. High maintenance people like us are perfect for the God we have. Our need, it doesn't turn him off. It doesn't push him away. It actually energizes him to draw even nearer to us. He doesn't grow annoyed. He doesn't grow overwhelmed. He calmly and gently and lovingly receives us and cares for us. 
moment by moment. James highlights this access to God that we have beginning in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. When do we pray? When life hurts. When life feels good. Prayer is an outlet for everything that happens in our lives. Nothing is too insignificant. Are you suffering, James says? Then pray. Notice, James doesn't qualify the type of suffering. He he doesn't say, if you're suffering to this degree, then God's door is open to you. You know, I think sometimes we tend to think that we need to, things need to be just really bad before we go to God. We think, this is hard, but I should be able to handle this. I should know the answer. I should know what to do. I should. I should. I should. We, we should all over ourselves. <laughs> and we don't seek the help that we need. But James doesn't say, pray as a last resort. He doesn't say, pray when things are so hard, you don't know what else to do. He doesn't say, pray when suffering reaches more than you can handle. He doesn't put a qualification on it at all. God cares about all of our hurts. And He's there for all of our pains. He will help you. You know, one of the things about suffering is it always makes us feel alone, doesn't it? As if no one quite understands what we're going through. But the gospel says you're never alone. Not one nanosecond of your life. God is always there. Jesus suffered like us. Not for some show, but so that we would have a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. We have a Savior who knows what this life is like. He's there always. So if life hurts for whatever reason, God calls you to himself in prayer. And the opposite is also true. When life is going well, praise. Andrew Peterson has a a great song. It really helps me grasp this point. It's called, Don't You Want to Thank Someone? Here are just a few lyrics. Don't you ever wonder why, in spite of all that's wrong here, there's still so much that goes so right and beauty abounds. Because sometimes when you walk outside, the air is full of song here. The thunder rolls and the baby sighs and the rain comes down. And when you see the spring has come and it warms you like a mother's kiss, don't you want to thank someone? Don't you want to thank someone for this? This world, for all of its fallenness, still holds beauty that takes our breath away, doesn't it? The poet Gerard Manley Hopkins said, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. 
When we wake up and the, and the sun is shining and the air is crisp and the coffee is good and the day is open and available to us and we get to do meaningful work and our heart just swells with the good things of life, what do we do with that gratitude? We praise God. Life isn't only suffering. It's also almost unbearably sweet at times. God gives us that. We praise God. James means that prayer and praise are really the same things. Praise rightly directed is prayer. It's the heart's cry to its maker. Thank you. So generally and individually, we pray when something bad or something good happens to us. We just pray. It ought to be our response. Now James moves from the general to the specific, from individual to small group in verse 14. He says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So here's another time to pray. When sickness overwhelms us and takes us into the shadow of death. And James here isn't, isn't talking about a common cold, though we should pray during those times as well. He's talking about those particularly bad illnesses that leave us wondering if maybe this is the end. The sick person can call the elders of the church and they can come and pray over them and anoint them with oil. This isn't an, I'll try anything, shot in the dark, but a humble seeking of God's help, letting God minister through the prayers of your pastors. When you are down and out and you can't do anything else, maybe you can't even get out of bed, God still cares for you. He still provides a way forward. He has ministers to help you by prayer. James gives specific instructions to the elders. You see, they, they pray and anoint the sick person's head with oil. Now, what does this oil do? In the Roman Catholic Church, there's a sacrament of unction, where the dying is anointed with oil to remove remnants of sin and get the soul, soul ready to die. This is not what James means. He also doesn't mean that the oil holds some special healing power in and of itself. It's not medicinal in nature, even. So what's it for? Well, we see in the Bible often, especially in the Old Testament, that oil is used in consecrating and setting someone apart to God. It's a symbol in this instance that the elders are bringing this specific person and this specific request to God. And verse 15 speaks of this kind of prayer's results. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now, that's a tricky verse, isn't it? It's a tricky passage in general, but this verse is tricky. Some people have used it as God's promise that all who pray the prayer of faith will be healed. So when a person isn't healed, it's usually blamed on a lack of faith. The elders didn't believe enough, or as it often goes, the sick person just doesn't have enough faith. If they believed more, they would be saved. They would be healed. But is that what James means when he talks about the prayer of faith? I mean, let's just think it through. 
does it sound like God to require a certain strength from us in order to bless us? Does it sound like Jesus, when he came, did he demand that we measure up to his standard? Did he rebuke the man that said to him, I believe, help my unbelief? Did he recoil when Thomas sought to touch his scars after his resurrection? Or did Jesus stoop low? Did he humble himself to our level? Did not Jesus come gentle and lowly with his heart open to the weak and sinful and doubting? Would God then be so cruel as to keep his blessing from those whose faith he deemed insufficient, even as they look to him for help? Would God withhold his power until we mustered up the right amount of faith? If the prayer of faith means that all who believe enough are healed, then only those who believe enough are healed, then why was Paul's thorn not taken away? Why did Paul, as we see in the book of Acts, have to leave one of his sick friends? Did Paul not have enough faith? If Paul didn't have enough faith, I I don't have enough faith. You probably don't either. Lack of healing cannot be because of lack of faith. When God says no, it must be for a reason that we just can't see yet. We aren't Him. And if He's really our Father, He actually does know what's best for us. And then if we take the prayer of faith to to mean that it's a certain strength of faith, a certain amount of faith, uh, I don't know what we do with other parts of the Scriptures. For example, Jesus healed some not because of their faith, but to stimulate their faith. In John 9, Jesus healed a man born blind. The man didn't ask for healing. But Jesus healed him anyway. In that instance, faith was a result of healing, not a prerequisite for it. Here's the point I want to make about this this verse. Healing is a gift, not a reward. We're not in charge of God. Pulling the lever of his healing powers by the right kind of prayer, working the angles, mustering up enough faith like coins for the vending machine. That is not how this works. We humbly trust God and ask for his healing, but we leave the results in his hands, in his will. The prayer of faith is not faith that something we want, even something that we think we desperately need, will be granted if we just pray hard enough. Rather, it's laying our lives in the hands of God, consecrating ourselves to Him and trusting His will by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's it's truly looking to God and not to anything else, because what we need most is Him. And if we have him, who cares what else happens? It doesn't mean that physical healing always comes right now. It also means 
that God can heal despite our doubting. There's a tension here. And when the Bible doesn't resolve all the tensions for us, let's just hold it in tension. That's okay. It's not the strength of our faith that matters. What matters is the one in whom we have faith. God knows what He's doing. And we need only to trust Him. Maybe He'll heal. Maybe He won't. But even if He does, we know one day we will die. Physical healing can only get us so far. And we also know, ultimately, that no matter what the answer to our prayer right now is, that one day those who pray with such faith, even a mustard seed, will be healed. We will have perfect, glorified bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. The Bible promises us that. How do we get this glorious new body? James goes on, and if he has committed sins... He will be forgiven. Healing has more than a physical dimension, doesn't it? Confession of sin heals. Now, not every sickness is a result of sin. That's not what James means. But sickness can be a result of sin. I mean, we barely believe that today, but the Bible does link sin and sickness together in time, at certain times. Jesus, for example, healed the paralytic, by saying his sins were forgiven. Paul told the Corinthians some were sick because they abused the Lord's Supper. Confession of sin heals us as we pour out our souls to our gracious and merciful God. And sometimes we just, we can't do that on a normal, everyday kind of day, can we? Sometimes sickness is the means by which we are humbled enough to confess and seek God's face. And notice what James says. He will be forgiven. God is faithful to forgive our sins because Jesus, our substitute, took the penalty for them on the cross. And God is faithful to raise us up because Jesus, our Redeemer, conquered the grave. He conquered death. Our big issue with this passage shouldn't be trying to figure out exactly what the prayer of faith is and how we tap into that. We ought to rather make sure we know the God who calls us to have faith in Him. The God who asks us to leave our lives in His hands. To just humbly confess and trust His perfect will. That's not easy. But it's our only way forward. Leaving our lives in the hands of the God who cares. James then takes us a step further from individual prayer to the small group prayer to now corporate prayer. This involves all of us. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another 
that you may be healed. The exhortation to confession and prayer isn't reserved only for the sick. It's for everyone. We might not like that. Confession of sin is exposing, isn't it? It's scary, isn't it? It might not be what we want to do. It's embarrassing. And in fact, when it's embarrassing, then that's, I think, at least one indicator that you're actually really confessing real sin. But confession is like, it's like removing oxygen from sin's lungs. It has an effect. It heals. And when others listen and pray on our behalf, they help us actually find the healing of forgiveness. Now, in context, James may have in mind those who have mutually sinned against one another inside the church and therefore harmed the church body. Sins against God are confessed to God. But sins against God and others are confessed to God and others. Now, we do that carefully and humbly. God wants us to be right with one another. So James says, confess your sins to one another. He doesn't say, confess one another's sins. He says, confess your sins. And pray for one another. Just as there is a command to the sinner to confess, there's the responsibility of the one listening to pray, to intercede, to take the matter to God and to move forward. James doesn't say embarrass one another or shame one another, but pray for one another. What we really believe about God is seen in this interaction where sins are confessed. If we really believe the free grace and forgiveness of God in Christ, we will freely forgive others because we've experienced such grace ourselves. Do you see the beauty in that? This is how deep fellowship is birthed in God. In this simple but profound practice, we cultivate a gospel culture built on the gospel doctrine of grace in Christ. This is the path to corporate healing anytime we need it. So that's when we pray. God is inviting us to prayer because He cares about our lives. And the specifics of this passage just reaffirm that. Now, why we pray. God not only coaches us on when to pray, but He also shows us why we pray. We've seen it already. We pray because by prayer, God heals and forgives. But there's more. In the second part of verse 16, James says, The, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Then he jumps into an example of Elijah in verses 17 and 18. I'll admit, it's weird, isn't it? Like, what? What? What's he doing? What's he saying? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. James is using Elijah as the example of the righteous person's powerful prayer that works. So at the most basic level, we pray because God says prayer works. 
It's not worthless. It works. Now, how does Elijah help us see this? We know him as a prophet in the Old Testament. But the reason James chose Elijah as an example is not that he was some extraordinary prophet. You know, someone that's so far above us, if we could just reach his level, then our prayers will work. That's not what he's doing. James says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. It's the ordinariness of Elijah that he highlights here. Elijah was just a man, just like us. But his prayers worked. Why? If we go back to the Old Testament, we see that Elijah's prayers are not out of nowhere. He wasn't sitting there one day thinking, you know, these people are really bothering me, and I'm just going to pray for no rain, and that'll show them. It wasn't his idea. He didn't just think of that out of nowhere. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, God told Moses to tell the Israelites, If you do not obey the Lord your God, these curses will come upon you. The Lord will strike you with scorching heat and drought. The sky over your head will be bronze and the ground beneath you iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. Elijah lived in a day of Israel's rebellion against God. And he was praying God's words after him. That's why it worked. Working prayer is asking God to do what he has already said he was going to do. Elijah is a righteous person aligning his prayers with the promises of God that are revealed in the scriptures. He's praying the prayer of faith, prayer aligned with the will of God, asking God to do what he said he would do. We pray ultimately because God is true to his word. And when our prayers are aligned with his word, we have confidence that he will do what he says he will do. Elijah prayed because God had spoken. We pray because God has spoken. Prayer is not a string of empty words to a wordless God, but a pointed plea to a Savior who has spoken. We know what God plans to do in this world because He's told us. We know His purposes. We know His intentions. We have the Bible as our ever-present word from God about His plans for our lives and for this world. And in the Bible, we have examples like this of Elijah, of people who prayed, asking God to do what He said He would do, and God answered those prayers. We pray not because it's our idea or because it makes us feel better, but because God has ordained that the prayers of His people bring about His purposes. By prayer, God is actually inviting us into the work that He's doing in this world. Charles Spurgeon said, Prayer moves the arm that moves the world. Just as Elijah's prayers directed the rain, your prayers... If you are in Christ, direct the world. They matter. Yes, God is sovereign and can do what He will without us, but He chooses to use our prayers. The Bible sees no contradiction there. We don't know exactly how that works. Again, tension. 
Okay. Your prayers matter. You're just like Elijah. You're weak. You're not enough. You're ultimately powerless. But your prayers are not powerless because God is not powerless. Prayer is not magic incantations thrown into the wind, but faith put in the God whose arms are not short, whose hands are not weak, and whose power upholds the universe. Your prayers, like Elijah's, are powerful because you're praying to a powerful God. Now, how does this relate to what James has said before? In our lives, we pray because God is involved. He's near. He's with us. He cares. We take our hard things to Him. We take our good things to Him as their proper landing place inside a love that is too great to give us merely what we deserve, but that instead gives us grace and peace and a secure place to stand in this ever-shifting world. We pray for healing and we confess our sins because we know God has promised to heal and to save. Even if our physical healing must wait till heaven, we know one day he will do it. The healing of forgiveness, well, that's available right now. In the moment we need it. Always. Romans 8.1 is always true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know because of Jesus that there is a glorious new life out ahead for all who love him. And we can pray to hasten the day. Lord, come quickly. Now, How do we know that that really is out ahead for us? Because like Elijah, Jesus was made a human just like us. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 2, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He had to be made like us in every respect. In the incarnation, Jesus, God, became like us. He lived a human life with human suffering, with human prayers. He entered our world in order to save us by living the life that we should have lived, but we failed. And dying the guilty death that we are owed, but we don't owe anymore. Jesus became a man like us to save us. And because of that, when he rose from the grave three days after the cross, he put a yes at the end of every one of God's promises. And not a yes, period. A yes, exclamation point. Infinitely yes. Everlastingly yes. Unfailingly yes. Because of Jesus, we will be raised one day. We will be healed, finally, fully, forever. 
we will be forgiven. We will find that the deepest prayers of our hearts are granted as God plants his word in us, not because we deserve it, not even because we prayed the right prayers, but because God will bring all his good promises to pass and not one word of all that he promises will ever fail. We pray because prayer aligned with God's word works. He's inviting us to the party. Prayer draws us closer to God, closer to his gospel, closer to his word, closer to his heart. God is inviting us into reality with him as we await the day that we finally see him face to face. What is better than that? Don't our hearts long for that? We have it. Let's pray now. Father, we thank you that we can come that you care, not about the big things only, but about the little things that everyone else in this world thinks are insignificant. They're not to you. Because we're not to you. And Father, I pray that we would trust you. That we would believe in your word. That we would engage you in prayer in ways that are normal. It's normal Christianity. But it makes a dent in this world. You have determined, Lord, that our prayers work. So, Lord, let us trust. Let us believe. Let us move ever closer to you. We thank you that there is salvation. We don't have to wonder what's coming out ahead. We know you've said it. And so, Lord, we just... We pray that you would come quickly. Redeem this broken world. Restore what is broken. Give us grace to believe even more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.